Um, I read I read uh, this article in the the uh, local paper. Um, and Bill to actually come off some of the things you and I had talked about uh, the night. Um, there is a uh, uh, a local uh, uh, Jewish temple in town where the the rabbi and his wife every Shabbat would walk uh, to uh, to temple, and have been doing it for years. And then she developed uh, cancer, and by the time they found it, it was like stage four cancer, and she didn't have long to live. And and uh, then they could drive her to temple instead of walking, but ultimately she died. And and there was a lot of grieving that went on. And he kept trying to decide what would be the best way to honor his wife, at uh, and her, her contribution to his life and to the temple. Okay. Well, what they had was a set of kind of standardized Torah scrolls in there but what they did not have was the one that they cherished the most which was a handwritten Torah scroll so what they did is they, they did some checking and found out it would cost about $50,000 to commission a handwritten Torah scroll for the temple so they did a fundraising effort and everything they, they raised the money and they hired a, uh, a uh, Jewish rabbi in Israel to write out the handwritten Torah scroll which is kind of cool and and this is this is one of those moments apparently he at the time he's writing it there are times that he would come out to Plano and he would visit with the people and one of the things that they tried to do for the for the kids is that while he was working on it and he's inscribing some of the characters the kids would get to hold the 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 feather scroll because it's all done in ink and all that uh, so everybody kind of got to be part of that and you can imagine and th then it was I think it was recently presented and that's what where the article came from can you imagine though for them it's like here's this beloved uh, Torah scroll handwritten hand provided and that people got to a number of people got to be part of even if it was just touching it for a few moments um, and which which kind of uh, set me thinking uh, a little bit um, when we talk about um, what a blessing it is for us to have oh, this might be out of juice if we ever take uh, if we're ever aware of just how um, for granted we take our scriptures we have the ability to grab our scriptures and read it uh, at any given time um, and and so I'm thinking about times for instance uh, let's say that you were at the time of Henry VIII you are you are a member of what was the Catholic Church now maybe the Church of England um, what scriptures are available to you at that period of time are there scriptures available in your town <coughs> Yes, there's probably one set of. That's right. So, so that's the deal. In in your town, there'll probably be one set of scriptures. It's a big thing, and it sits in the church. It's in Latin. Okay, so nobody's reading Latin. If you are literate, which was you know 
dicey proposition. Uh, you don't know Latin. Latin is a language that would only be reserved for those. In the same way, by the way, if the scriptures to the those in the Book of Mormon, we don't know exactly what all the Nephites had, but could you read the writings of Nephi in, in the plates if you got your hands on them? No, because they were written in Reformed Egyptian, and you're not walking around speaking Reformed Egyptian. You're speaking some dialect of Mayan or whatever that combination of stuff was, right? So remember at the time that they're not, they don't have access to the scriptures in, in England at this period of time. And so this is where William Tyndale comes into play and he believes that they should have access to it. So he goes off to Germany and he's, he's uh, translating from, uh, from the uh, Hebrew into English on the Old Testament side and from Greek and Latin into the English on the New Testament side. He's putting it together. Why is he in Germany? It's what? Gutenberg Bible? Uh, the Gutenberg Bible, the ability to print it had just kind of come into play. So he was writing it and then they were printing it. He's writing it in Germany because it's a death sentence. If, he can be, if he's going to be caught, he can be potentially killed because the king had decreed that it wasn't supposed to be in the common tongue. It wasn't supposed to be in English. It was supposed to be in this higher language, right? So he's in Germany hiding out. And the king's people are trying to find him. Now he's gone to Germany because that's where Lutheran was, Lutheranism and Lutheran, so they, were more, they weren't as likely to be pushed by the king in England. Okay, they're a little more sympathetic if he wants to go ahead and write. But the king is still sending people into Europe to try and find where are these things coming from. Because what he's doing is printing them off. And you may get a few pages at a time. You may get the Sermon on the Mound or, or maybe parts of Matthew or something like that. And they're being smuggled into England in, uh, in bales of flax and hay and stuff like that. They would hide them in there. People would meet it at the docks. They would take these, these handful of printed copies, put it up their sleeve, hide it in their dress, and then they would wait until they would take it back to their house or around the public house. And then when the lights were dimmed and, and the king's people weren't around, they would then huddle around the campfire, so to speak, and read the Sermon on the Mount. What would happen if one of the king's people walked in and saw you reading from this English version of, of Tyndale's Bible? You'd be burned at the stake. Right, so we talk about the, the Christian martyrs, a lot of the Christian martyrs just simply wanted to get their hands on the scriptures. And that they didn't have the whole scriptures, they had just a handful, and again, just those handful of people that were literate were being able to read it to everybody else. Okay, So we have this tradition, this history of how critical scriptures are to us. Um, now, I was, uh, I was thinking about this. Um, let's say that you're, a, that you're a Christian in, I don't know, 45 A.D. Savior's been dead about a decade. You're in the first decade of the church. What scriptures have you got in 45, 50 A.D.? You might have a letter from one of the apostles. Maybe. Maybe. It would be in the leader's hands. 
Yes, and we and we have no idea now. The 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 earliest the reason why I'm saying this the earliest of the four gospels that that was written was written decades after it's the book of Mark, and it was being performed orally. They would either stand up and recite it. There's some suggestions that at sometimes it was performed a bit as a play. But generally just orally, how what was their where were their scriptures? In their head. We're just going to memorize them. Okay, it's an oral history. Oral history of what? What are they teaching? How many people remember Jesus saying this or doing this? Well, you know, I do remember when we were like having Passover with him on the side of the mountain over there. He did say, love one another. Ah, yeah, yeah, I remember that one. And, you know, and do you remember, what else do you remember? Well, he said, uh, I don't know, turn the other cheek, I, you know. It's all oral. They don't have it. Now, what, what, avail, what was available to them was... Uh, for in some cases, the Septuagint, which was the Hebrew Bible that had been translated into Greek. Now we just talked about in for this Torah that was handwritten. How much did that cost? Fifty grand. Think about the the similar cost that would have been to someone in 45 AD, let's say in Capernaum. You've got a little Christian branch in Capernaum. What are the chances that they have a Septuagint that have been handwritten out from, from Aramaic into Greek? Very slim. Very slim. Yeah, just a handful of these things around. So mo again, most likely, where are the scriptures? In their head. Okay? Or as Isaiah would try and say, maybe it's written on, your, on the soft places of your heart. Okay? Now, there were some things that were out there. We know, uh, you, know you didn't know you were going to get this kind of history lesson, I guess. Um, one of the things that we found at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls, is that the Dead Sea Scroll, the, the, the area in Qumran, for the most part, most of their activity uh, was as really as a printing house. They were copying, 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 copying. Uh, and so they would get these scrolls and like the, and the number one, by the way, the number one copied scroll in Qumran would have been the book of Isaiah. We have multiple copies of Isaiah scrolls uh, coming out of that. Um, now, by the way, there was some stuff coming out of Qumran that was available to the people. Uh, we don't know how much or how extensively, but I think I mentioned, did you know the Savior quoted from the Dead Sea Scrolls? <laughs> he did. He did. We have one line, and it's in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's going to say, you have heard it said, anciently, that if somebody uh, smites you on the, what, what is it? Uh, all right, hold on. This is worth it. <laughs> there it is. Thanks, thanks, Bill. Yes, you have heard it anciently said, "Love your, you, love your enemies, hate." That's from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and and here here the Savior is quoting it. Why is he quoting it? Because it was out there. <laughs> It was out there. They, so we know that 
some of these scriptures were available to people, number one, but how many in this period of time were literate? So even if the scriptures had been available, how many people could read them? Very few. So, so let me drive home the point. Where were the scriptures in the old days? In their heads. Orally. By memory. Without, and it's going to be decades after the Savior's death before the first writings are out there. We don't know how extensively they were published, but that, that's really where it is. So, uh, that's a long way of saying uh, how grateful we are to have the scriptures that we have, their availability to us, uh, and how important it was. Uh, th think about trying to do any kind of classes in the church whether it's quorum or Sunday school or t give a talk, how are you going to do that without the scriptures? Really, that's a little more difficult, isn't it? Okay, you can see why it is that there was such a battle going on at the, in the first century of the church without having a standardized set of scriptures. Okay, yeah. Where, where did Tinsdale get his education? How many languages? Tinsdale had been classically, he's wondering where Tinsdale got his, his education. Tins, remember, Tinsdale was a priest, and so he'd gone to Oxford. He had, uh, he, he had uh, knowledge of uh, Greek and Hebrew and, and a variety of other languages. Tinsdale's, by the way, Tinsdale's um, genius was saying, I have, I have this, this verse here in Greek, for me to move it into English, if anybody's learned any foreign languages, what words do you use in English to try and convey the ideas and thoughts of the original authors? So his genius was, he, he was also a very literary kind of thing, so he's choosing English words very carefully to express the thought. So not only does he have the language, but he also has the literary skill. Uh, I, I've mentioned before that Tyndale's maybe his greatest phrase well known was the fact that he's taken the fact that the, the scripture, the writer is talking about the spirit, the voice of the spirit being very soft and gentle. And he experiments with several ways of how to say that. And finally he chose a literary device of S's to try and implant it on our brain. And, he's gonna, and he will coin the phrase, still small voice. That's William Tyndale writing that in that translation process. Okay? And by the way, if, you are, if, if, if most of your scripture is going to be in your head, is that easy to remember? Still small voice. You go, oh, what'd you hear? Still, small voice. I got it. Okay, it's logged in here. Okay? He was martyred for this. Ultimately, they found him. He was betrayed. Uh, they found him, that darn that guy. He's printing stuff, and they found him, brought him back to England. And he was. He was, he was uh, uh, beheaded and burned. And, and, uh, and then it was just, just a matter, just a handful of years later, that they finally said, okay, we'll do it in English, and then we'll commission the King James Version. Uh, but by then, you know, it was a bit too late for William Tinsdale. Yeah. I have a question. It's kind of like a side side question. What you're talking about, memorized by in the head, or, right. or the uh, original re, uh, original source, of yeah. the author. And so I'm thinking like the when when I do my personal scripture study, I learned that it's important to memorize the scripture. But my question is here is 
how important we memorize the original source of the author word by word or like uh, the old the old day people memorize probably the, me the memorization came from after their personal comprehension so it may not be word by word so what's the difference in the, oh. the personal study and the I assume both both way will gain uh, inside, but so you're what you're bringing up is a bigger thing. What she's saying is, I understand that it's important, and I can memorize a verse word for word, and I can be able to uh, utilize that. But what happens if, as you're memorizing that word, that verse word for word, and you have your own impressions and ideas and, yeah, and things that come from that? Now you're in Joseph Smith's shoes. Now, now you're there. Now you are there. And that is, here's these impressions coming in, and I can do the verse here, but what happens if I get additional insights into this? Now, you're not writing for the church. If you're just going to journal, you're just writing for you. What was my reaction to all of this, and do I remember it based on that? Yeah, and my further question is, uh, as a teacher, like a, a, our apostles, the general authority, when they teach us, they yeah. have to quote from the original source. Right. I hope I can. No, but, but Judy, they, they, when, when a general authority, yes. under inspiration, uh -huh. is quoting from a scripture, uh -huh. uh, he is quoting from the original source. Uh, Harold B. Lee talked about a time once where uh, he, he, uh, he gave some element of doctrine, <laughs> and somebody came up to him afterwards and said, can you give us a citation for that? Where exactly did you get that? And, and he was, you know, he was put in a difficult position because what he wanted to say was, well, it came from me. <laughs> it came from me listening to the Spirit. It, you know, and they were saying, well, show us where it says that in Isaiah. Or tell me where Brigham Young said that. And sometimes I think we do get it from the original source. And the original source is going to be more inspiration to us. And that actually becomes more valuable scripture to us. Yeah. Do you remember that documentary? About Tyndale? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great stuff. Great stuff. Yeah. It also raises the question, and I get this a little bit confused too, what are scriptures today? What, aren't there the certain things that are being said uh, even in conference or... And I get the terms confused, but what is... Oh, now you're asking the, I th now you're asking the really right questions. <laughs> what is really scripture to us today? Um, is, is something that Brigham Young said in 1857, you know, is that scripture to us today? And it, it comes right along the lines of what is our doctrine. Yes. Okay? It, it's in that same ballpark. Do we, as a church, do we believe that Jesus was married? Personally, yes, but not doctrinally. When was the last time you heard that preached in general conference? Never. <laughs> when was the last time that you saw an article in the Ensign talking about how Jesus was married? Never. Is, is it our doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that Mary was married to Jesus? No. No, it's not. Orson Hyde said, and Orson F. Whitney said, and yeah, <laughs> they did. 
Is it, is it our doctrine, and let me just push a little bit farther, because I've, I've tried, I guess, to bring this up a couple of times. Is it our doctrine that when you die, you go to heaven or hell? That you'll either go to a place of everlasting peace or everlasting burnings immediately after you die? No, no it's not our doctrine. King Benjamin said it. Right. <laughs> so, so, you know, when you're asking what is our scripture, I think that's kind of an important question because it, if we're allowing for the, for the growth and the, and, the, and the ongoing restoration of the church, we're going to find that things that brethren have said and even sometimes some things written in the scriptures anciently, now we're getting to this point and we're saying, we think we understood it there now, but we don't necessarily understand that. So, so when you're wondering what is scripture to us, that's why I think you're seeing the church double down on saying, what, did you, what have you heard in general conference? Not 30 years ago, what did you hear in general conference six months ago? Because we're allowing for growth and development, not because what they were saying was wrong, but simply because that what we knew back then has now been given additional knowledge and understanding and inspiration, and we're all moving forward. We have to believe in a continually restored church and continually restoring scripture. We just do. Okay? Don't lock us into stuff from the past. Yeah. I don't really know how to form what I want to say about this, but how, again, like how are we going to move forward as a church in getting the members to to do this? Because I think there's so much that people will bring them young stuff. Well, bring young stuff lost. <laughs> yes, he did. It's actually happening. It's happening right now, actually, in the seminaries and institute programs. Is we have moved from the memorizing. Yeah. To understanding the doctrines in those scriptures and how does it apply to these youth today? Yeah, my my, uh, my son was asked to be uh, uh, Joseph Smith in primary on Sunday, and he says, and he was going to talk about translating the Book of Mormon. And he says, okay, and he dressed up like Joseph Smith, and he says, you know, when I first started uh, translating, I had these big, thick glasses things, and they wouldn't fit on my face very well, and uh, I keep sending him all to the, all the right sources. And it wouldn't fit on my face very well, uh, but the Lord said I could use uh, a, a stone that I had, a seer stone that I could work from. And so I was going to look on that. But the problem is, like under a microscope, is that it was too light in the room while I was trying to look at it. So I would take that stone and I would actually, uh, the best thing I could find was a hat. So I would put that in a hat so it would block out the, the light and then I would be able to see it. Guess what? The, here's a generation getting it right for the first time and, and, and finally getting the narrative different from what was taught in primary pictures and paintings the past. So we're getting there, but, but uh, I've used the, the phrase a couple of weeks ago, uh, Neil Maxwell talking about the church is like a big aircraft carrier, you know, and we're all on top of the deck. And if it moves too fast, everything slides off. <laughs> so we're moving never as fast as we'd like to, but we're getting there, okay? Uh, by the way, those of you who have been in this class and we're going through church history very carefully, I think you're kind of the ambassadors of this. I really do to say, no, we have a new information that wasn't available to people uh, 20 years ago. Tim, then here. What I was going to say was that I think there's a, a difference between doctrine, current thinking, right. and practice. Right. Yeah. Sometimes we merge them all together. 
you know, uh, especially people from outside the church. They merge them all together and say, well, your doctrine is plural marriage. Well, no, that's not our Yeah. Doctrine. Yeah. Doctrine is that Jesus is the Christ. That's right. I know. And sometimes, like a prominent pastor said, trying to find out what Mormons believe is like trying to nail jello to the wall. <laughs> because we've been in this transition period of time, okay? Yeah. Bouncing off of that, if, I mean, everything that is being said, though, is still grounded on the doctrine of the gospel, the principles of yes. the Yes. Uh, going back to the discussion on Jesus Christ having a wife. There's no talk about that, but there is talk about marriage and the necessity for eternal marriage to be to, to be ex exalted. Christ was exalted, so you you put the pieces together. Sure. And so, would we in a spirit world would we be totally shocked to find out that he was married? We go, no, it sort of makes sense. It's just that we have to be careful what we're saying to the world. Is Mormons believe this because so often those outside the church have been the ones to define what we believe. Mormons believe that no we don't well we're our worst enemies and saying well yeah we believe we have we, we believe that we have uh, magic undergarments really they stop bullets and fire and 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 it'll save it really and then we're shocked when somebody goes Mormons believe in magic garments no we do oh yes we told them we did it stops bullets you know we're our own worst enemies on this so yeah um, I was back in the church history uh, locations this first week of this month, uh -huh. and they gave us a bookmark in one of the places, I can't remember which one it was in, of the brand new church history. Uh, oh really? You're getting to see the new church history? And they said it is really uh, brought up to date, it even has part of the uh, Joseph Smith papers in it, Yeah. and it was going to be out by the end of April. Awesome. Okay, so I'm waiting to get my hands on it, but you know what, I've actually been reading in the Joseph Smith papers, I'm already reading what's going to be in that history, and I'm going to quote some of it today. Yeah. It's out, it's available on the, uh, what's it called? Gospel Library. Well, the Gospel. first three chapters. Are, are they really? Yeah. Well, they're cool. actually been studying one of the first three chapters the last several months, but that's what's Okay. All right, so let's, let's take all this. Now, let's move it ahead. Uh, to where to, let's bring it up to where we have where where we're studying. Um, it is now uh, November 1831, and what scriptures are available in the first kind of year and a half of the church's existence? Because by the way, congratulations, you've joined the church. Now go on a mission. Okay, uh, you know, everybody would expect it. Go preach the gospel. Okay, so they're out. Or at the very least, I heard this new gospel. Great, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go visit my family. Hey, I've been listening to this, and, and I'm going to become a Mormonite. Great, what do Mormons believe? What are you telling them in the summer of 1831? Or, you know... Uh, because remember, they were when they went, originally went out to to Zion to dedicate the the site. They're supposed to preach along the way, and Hiram's going to Detroit, and everybody's going. What are they preaching along the way, and what scriptures are they using? Okay, how many people had Book of Mormons? Yeah, a handful. Okay, there's not very many. It's expensive. There were there weren't that many copies, and what's that? 
They would have the scriptures, so we're going to work off of the scriptures a bit. Okay, but there's a new prophet. What's he saying? It's in their heads. And in some their of it's heart. in their heads and their hearts. I've written some of it down. Yeah. And, and we don't even have tracks yet at this. Yes. So what did they have? Well, here's what they were doing. Uh, they, they would. We, we've talked about some of the more prominent revelations. Every time that Joseph would have a revelation, he would uh, Sidney or Oliver, someone would write it down. Then they would give it to John Whitmer, and John Whitmer wrote it into a book called the Revelations Book. And at the top of each revelation, by the way, it says commandment in great big letters. And then he would copy down word for word the revelation that had come from Sidney Rigdon, Rigdon's writings or Oliver Cowdery's or Emma's or whoever's. So we had this revelation book and it was starting to grow. Now some of these, some of the revelations that had come to Joseph were personal to uh, a number of people like John Whitmer. But some like section 20, the, the kind of the, the uh, uh, doctrines of the church. How about section 42, the law? Here's what the law of Zion is going to look like. How about section 76, uh, the vision? And that's what they would call it. They wouldn't say, this is section 42. They'd say, I'm quoting from the law. Really? Oh, yes, we know the revelation, the law. Okay, so 20, 42. 42 had num numerous copies made of it. Section 76, the vision, had a lot of copies made of it. Uh, what they would do though is they were taking, if you're Oliver Cowdery for instance, you have John Whitmer or you or somebody's going to sit down and work off of that revelation book and make a handwritten copy of that revelation. Or you ask John and maybe John will do it for you or something. So now I've got copies of this. They were taking these, these uh, precious documents and folding them together and then, with, and then hand stitching like a little binding on there and maybe put like a, like a harder piece of paper covering on it. They were making their own scriptures. And, they, and each one had their own little hand copy of the revelations that were coming to Joseph Smith so far so that they would have those. Okay. Now, part of the problem is, is that not everybody had the same one. <laughs> Depending on how well you copied it. Depending on if somebody made an error in that one, you might have copied their errors. So you've got, we know, I've seen copies of Oliver Cowdery's and I think John Whitmer's and I think W.W. W. Phelps uh, had these little bound pamphlet things of handwritten scripture so that they would have available to show to family uh, and to kind of work off of, okay? It's not really a great system, is it? Okay, so now what we need to do is we need to somehow do what? We need to get them printed. Okay? Where's the church's printing press? We don't have one yet. Where does the church intend to do its printing? In Zion. Where are we? We're in Kirtland. So we've got to agree which ones we're going to do. We have to edit the, the revelations that have come in. And we need to have a quiet place to do it. Okay? So it is at this point then we're going to go from Kirtland and we're going to move down the road a bit to Hiram, Ohio and we're going to move to the John Johnson farm. Uh, 
Uh, most of you know that uh, that becomes a possible because uh, Joseph is having a meeting with John and Elsa Johnson. She has a withered arm that is making it incapable for her to be able to work. Someone suggests, I think it's Hiram, that, that she should be healed. He says, okay. He gets up, walks across the room, heals her arm, and by all accounts of those who are there, she is instantly healed. And now it works, and that's what converted... Ezra Booth and John Carell and a bunch of others based on this miraculous moment. It also made a believer out of John Johnson and he goes, I know it's getting a little tight at the, at, uh, the Whitney store. You got, you got this cranky aunt that really doesn't want you there. Uh, why don't you come live with us? So they pack up wholesale and the Smiths move to Hiram, Ohio um, to the John Johnson farm. Um, so, in front of the John Johnson farm, for about six months, the John Johnson farm becomes the headquarters of the church. Uh, people, but sometimes hundreds at a time, would come down to Hiram, Ohio, to be, and Joseph would do preachings off of that uh, uh, porch area, and the original, it's still the original porch, which is kind of cool. You can stand right where Joseph was standing when he would preach uh, to these people, okay? So there, and they're going to give him one of the bedrooms upstairs that becomes the uh, Revelation room. How many have been to John Johnson Farm? Okay, about a third. Okay, very cool place. I, I, I love being on the the John Johnson Farm. What's that? Lynched there. This is where he was tarred and feathered. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll show if we. I don't know if we're going to get there today, but we might by certainly by next week. So you can see that they, they actually built a bowery out in front of that so that they could go ahead and do their... By the way, this original stoop is also the stoop over which when, when Joseph is uh, tarred and feathered, he and Sidney, they're dragged over th that stairway and then around the corner back to where the, the uh, cornfields were out and back. Okay? So... What they do with this then is that in this place, what, they hold a conference in the first week of uh, November, 1831. Let's, uh, let's decide which commandments are going to be commandments. We want to have them bound. Do we want to do it? Yes, we want to do it. Okay, we're going to do this together. Who's going to edit it? Then where are we going to do it? Well, we've got to get a press. Okay, so we're going to commission get a press out as soon as we can get W.W. Phelps in business. Uh, but it's going to take a couple of years anyway. Okay, it'll be 1833 before the actually start doing the printing on this about 18 months later but we're going to compile it now are you willing though that they do an interesting thing and it's like well as a conference are you guys willing to endorse that this is the word of God this is canonized scripture yes would you be willing to testify yes so a number of people stand up I testify that this is the word of God uh, and that's that's wonderful that's awesome um, bunch of them would you be willing to write your name would you be able to write a statement yes and sign that this is the word of God yes okay so here's what so what here's what they did Here's from the, you can do it, Attaway, thank you so much. Okay, from the Joseph Smith Papers, here is the, 
Here's the document that they wrote up to say, yep, this doctrine covenant, this, this book of commandments, we'll call it uh, the book of commandments. Great. Uh, do we agree that it is scripture? Yes, we do. Okay. So we'll write it up. And so they write it up and everything. And then they're going to, those that signed it, most of them there at Kirtland, there were a few that signed it also in Missouri to say this is the word of God. Okay. Now, one thing jumped out at me though that I thought was just fun about this, um, really kind of touched me. Um, you can see where they, where they have all signed in ink, right? Okay. Now, I want to zero in on this little, oops, shoot, don't go there. Uh, hold on, we're going to go here. Okay. I want you to see the signatures. Can you see that pretty well? Newell Knight, Thomas Marsh, Levi Hancock. I don't know if you can, I just love this. Levi Hancock writes it first in ink, and then there's something written in pencil that Levi Hancock went back and wrote next to his signature. And it's a little hard for you to read, but what that says is never to be erased. Never erase my name from this document. Because it's true. And that really touched me. It's one thing to, to say, I believe that this is true. And I'm going to sign my name to it. It's another thing to say, not only is it true, but never erase my name. Never. Which I thought was just kind of a cool little touch. Uh, Levi Hancock, I actually then went back and followed his history. Nobody, anybody here related to Levi Hancock? Okay, just check it. Incredible history. Uh, he will ultimately die as a, as a patriarch in uh, Washington, Utah, uh, late in life. But he will, his name was never erased. <laughs> and his testimony was never erased of what he knew from that, from that day in the John Johnson farm. Okay? All right. So, now, if you're now going to do this book, don't you need a preface? What are you going to put as the, the preface to this book? People are going to open it up. You read the Book of Mormon, you got the title page, right? Here's the Doctrine and Covenant, you need a preface, okay? I love this little vignette here. William E. McClellan, one of the conference participants, gave a more detailed account of the production of the preface 50 years later. Um, according to Kelly's account of the conversation, McClellan said that he, Sidney Rigdon, and Oliver Cowdery had been given the assignment to write the preface to the Book of Commandments. But when they presented their draft to the conference, the conference picked it all to pieces and requested that Joseph Smith petition the Lord for a preface. Your writing stinks. 
And, and by the way, remember, for McClellan especially, uh, this is the one where really there's kind of a challenge to say, if you don't like Joseph's writing, write your own. See what you can do. He comes back and goes, well, that's harder than I thought. This is that moment. They, they tried to come up with it. It was very obvious that the writings of these men did not match the revelatory pieces that they were getting through the instrumentality of Joseph Smith. So wisely they said, rather than have you guys do it, maybe we would have, maybe the Lord is willing <laughs> to give us a preface. That would be nice. Wouldn't it? All right. After Joseph Smith and the elders bowed in prayer, Joseph Smith, who was sitting by a window, and th this is one of those reminders that says, Joseph Smith just make this stuff up, you know, guys sit in his room and draw on something else. No, this is one of those moments where he's receiving a revelation in front of a lot of people, and you can actually see what was written and how it was written. Joseph Smith and the elders bowed in prayer. Joseph, who was sitting by the window, dictated the preface by the Spirit while Rigdon served as scribe. Um, Joseph would deliver a few sentences and Sidney would write them down. McClellan told Kelly, then read, read them aloud, and if correct, then jo if correct, then Joseph would proceed and deliver more. In this way, the preface was given. This is the way almost all the, revel the, the revelatory things to Joseph were done. It was in this way. It's almost like in translating the Book of Mormon. It would be slow. It would be deliberate. He would read it back. Is it correct? Then we'll move on to the next line. Yeah. I find that very interesting. Because uh, oh, you should. <laughs> when I'm trying to talk to Carol, yeah. I'll have a thought. Yeah. And, and then you slowly dictate to her what is it. I'll, I'll, no, I'll just tell her. And if any space elapses between that, you know, what I originally told her, right. I forget where it was <laughs> in the thread. And maybe that's because of my age. But um, it's, it's just interesting that you can pick The power of that, con yes, yeah. Yeah, it, I think we all do that, don't we? I, I mean, I've had clients come back to me and they say, you know, you were so helpful last week. <laughs> okay? What exactly did I say? <laughs> do you remember when you were telling me about this and this? And I'll go, and I'm thinking, wow, that was really good. <laughs> I have no memory of doing that. But that was a pretty good little line there. And I almost want to say, well, then what else did I say after that? <laughs> and so I'm going to say, well, I wrote it down. Oh, good. Let me know what I said. That. Do I still believe that? Yeah, yes, that's still really good. Okay, you're right. Sometimes that ability, inspiration will come to us and we'll say really cool stuff. Um, and, like, and like you, and like, I think like all of us, how do you know when you're receiving inspiration, whether you're teaching a class or a conference talk or something like that? You learn as much as everybody else does and you're learning at the moment it happens. Okay, so here's Joseph dictating. Um, and this way the preface was given. Okay, so let's hop over to DNC 1. Why would it be DNC 1? Well, because it's the preface. <laughs> <laughs> 
even though if you look at it in chronological order uh, the, the, the other sections that were given close to this are 65 and 66 and 67 we've jumped about 60 revelations down the road but the, the, this original preface was meant to be put right at the front here okay um, all right now, there's a couple of things, and I, I want to kind of spend the, the balance of the time, a couple of things coming out of here that I think are really kind of critical. Uh, Hearken, O ye, ye people of my church, verily the voice of the Lord. There's a voice of warning. Uh, behold, verse 4, uh, or vo verse 6, this is mine authority and the authority of my servants, my preface unto the book of commandments, which I have given them to publish unto you, O inhabitants of the earth, fear and tremble. Okay? Now, let's see where we go. Okay, so here's the problem. The problem at this point, one of the reasons why we're going to make sure these revelations are available, is that the people have strayed from mine ordinances and have broken mine everlasting covenants. They seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his way after the image of his own God. Ooh, we could spend a whole lesson on how we create gods of our own image. Um, I've done education week talks on uh, making gods out of our own image. It's just a wonderful phrase. But I want you to get a sense here. Okay? Now, verse 17. Wherefore, I the Lord, knowing the calamity which should come upon the inhabitants of the earth. Stop for a sec. What's a calamity? Catastrophe. Catastrophe. <clears throat> what? War. War. Hardship. Hardship. Plagues. Plagues. What? Tsunamis. Tsunamis. Yeah. Elections. Okay. Calamities. Okay. Now, I want to. I want to. I want to set this up a little bit. So here is here is my. Uh, We'll walk through this for just a second before we actually kind of identify what I think what, what I think he's talking about when he talks about calamities. See if you'd agree with me on these as eternal truths. That God is a perfected being. You with me on that? Okay. What he does is perfected. Uh, he does it perfectly. Okay. He loves with a perfect love. That we talk all kinds of love and caring and all kinds of things. The way that he would love would be a perfect love. It would be a perfected love. Okay? That love drove him to create a plan of happiness where we could become like him. In other words, his greatest act of love was putting something into play that would create the possibility of all of his children not just returning to be with him, but being like him. That would be the goal. 
Okay? And he would then put a plan together that would open up the possibility for every single person that comes into mortality to have that opportunity to become like him. And that that desire was driven by a feeling of love. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. Now, he loved us enough that he sent his son. Now, from the son... When asked what is the uh, what is the uh, what am I supposed to do? What's the, the the Savior says? Well, first of all, you follow the first and great commandment, which is to do what? What's the first and great commandment? <laughs> Love the the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and this, and the second is like unto it, which is. Love thy neighbor. So coming from the Savior, he's saying the greatest commandment is to love God. The second one is like unto it, which is to love your neighbor. Okay? Now, he's going to refine that a little bit when he says, A new commandment that I give unto you, new from kind of the law of Moses and all those things that were there, all this, the law of performances, a new commandment I'm going to give unto you, the New Testament I'm going to give unto you is to do what? As I have loved you, love one another. Now, would you, would you go with me on the place to say, this is the entire plan of salvation in a nutshell? Mm-hmm. The, in the entire gospel enterprise, our entire uh, journey through mortality, our entire set of what is expected of us, could it be subsumed into this one statement? As I have loved you, loved one another. Yeah, I would too. Yeah. That reminds me, that's why the prophets and all have moved us from home teaching, business teaching. To? Yes. Why? Because we were going from a law, which was what? Check the box every month that you did your home teaching, visiting teaching. And we're going to a what? Are you ministering? And how do you know how to minister? And I know this is driving a lot of people in the church a little crazy on this. Minister. Well, what does that mean? How are we supposed to do it? How are we supposed to know when we've done it? How do we know that we did it right? Is there something in the handbook? How do we know so that we can check it off? I'm a little bit OCD and a little bit perfectionistic, and i got to know, did I really do it or did I screw it up? Well, just go minister and love them. I don't know what that means. How do I quantify that? <coughs> I'm going to have to be called into a, a uh, visit with my Relief Society president or my Elders Quorum president. They're going to ask me how I did, and I don't have a box to check. How do I know I did it? I ministered. Boxes? Yes. How do I know? I can't report it. We just want to know. We want the checklist. We go, no, minister. Okay. <laughs> Yes. Well, and that's why I say, when we start boiling this down, don't we get to, as I have loved you, in the same way as a perfected being is loving you, what do I need you to do? Love one another. It becomes really, really simple. 
And people will say, well, wait a minute. The Book of Mormon does not contain the entire... Go uh, go Book of Mormon has the gospel. Yeah, but nothing is in there about, you know, work for the dead and, and all this kind of stuff. The Book of Mormon doesn't have the entire gospel. Does the Book of Mormon have the entire gospel? Yes. Which is what? As I have loved you, love one another. Is that in there? Oh, dang right it is. Okay. Now, so what he's going to say is, uh, here's a new commandment. As I have loved you, love one another. So, ready for this? Okay, buckle up. Ready? Okay. What is the purpose then of the commandments? Why do we have the commandments? There we go. You got it. Say it loud. Yes, the purpose of the commandments is to teach us how to love. It's not to provide a checklist that will be judged by at the last day. The purpose of the commandments is to teach us how to love. Yeah. Yeah, the God who weeps. A little heavy at points because it's the givens, but. <laughs> And I was reading the last chapter about just God and loving us. Yes. I remember years ago when um, Elder Maxwell talked about that scripture in Moses where the God, where Heavenly Father. Yeah, and his, and his rains fall like, his tears like rain upon the mountain, yeah. But the day after my husband passed away, I went to the temple, some friends took me, and the ordinance worker, I didn't know him at all that was serving. And it was so interesting because he had, I don't know what was going on in his own life, but he had like tears so many times through this. Wow. Yeah. You just feel that love radiating from him. Okay. So let me ask you then. If, if, this, if this is the gospel program, as I have loved you, loved one another. Um, if I think about all the commandments that we've got, for instance, um, Thou shalt not steal. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. How many commandments exist in the celestial kingdom? Do you think when you get accepted into the celestial kingdom, they're going to say, by the way, don't steal? <laughs> by the way, welcome, th thou good and faithful servant, enter into my rest, come back into our presence, and by the way, don't bear false witness. How many commandments actually exist in the celestial kingdom? It's just a part of who you are. Yeah, there's, it's not even a commandment to love, is it? it's just a part of... It's a part of who you, who you are, what you have become. Right. Do you need commandments in the celestial kingdom? No. Oh, heck no. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't need a temple in the celestial kingdom either because the whole thing. Because he's there. That's right. Okay. So the whole idea then is that we have commandments as training wheels to teach us this, this possibility of loving. Okay. Now, um, and, and the Savior ultimately is going to say, uh, as I have loved you, love one another. By this, by this pattern, shall all men know what? You're my disciple. So if we, if we come across, I don't know, let's say a Catholic nun who is loving God with all her heart. And she is loving people with a pure love. Is she a disciple of Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. How about Mother Teresa? Yeah. How about how about someone who's Muslim? Mm -hmm. 
who is loving God with all his heart and he's loving his fellow men and he, and he feels genuine, that lo, genuine, a genuine love for the people that he serves. Absolutely. Disciple of Christ? Absolutely. He would have a harder time with that. He believes in Jesus as one of those things, but a disciple of Christ, like we're defining it, might be a little tougher. Yeah? God loves us. Right. So, if we are following as much light and knowledge as we have, He will bless us beyond measure. To the, that's right. To the measure of our creation, the, the much as we know. Okay. What if you come across an atheist? Doesn't believe in God, but has a warm, loving heart, and he cares about people around him, and he's motivated by what he feels to take care of people. Is he a disciple of Christ? Yes. Yes. Would he be offended if you told him that? Yes. Probably. <laughs> I am not. <laughs> but all I know is that I, I, I want to be kind and I love and I care about people. Absolutely. Okay. Um, now, I, I just picture people like this on the other side of the veil that are able to then cross over and it just the whole program just makes sense to them. It would be such an easy slide. Okay. Right. It's like stepping it up a notch. Um, it also, from a public affairs point of view, um, it unifies us to other Christians and other good people. Yeah. Because we're ministering. That's what they do. They've been using yeah. ministry and ministering to each other for. Yeah, I think it makes it easier in kind of our in, in connecting with other people that not only can we uh, be very comfortable with people of other faiths, but we can learn from them. They have things to teach us about how to love and their insights to things. I think it makes it just easier for us to reach across the aisle and just see people where they are and now, now we're going to be more aware of who they are, what they've become rather than getting caught up sometimes on the lines. Now the one thing that I will say you know if you're thinking about kind of doing the atheistic bent here the one, the one danger that comes with that of course is that without kind of the structure of the gospel sometimes in the sake of love and caring and tolerance sometimes you can get pulled into some other directions. But by and large, I mean, we're, if this is the gospel program, to love one another uh, as he's loved us, it becomes very, very simple. Now, if that's the case, then how important, what role do the commandments play in our life? Give us bumpers. If you're a 13-year-old, what role do the commandments play in your life? <laughs> they for a 13 year old? No, I'm talking about. Oh, that's the reason, yes. If you, if you are looking at it as a 13 year old, what do you believe the commandments role, the, the commandments play in your life? The eye roll fodder. Yes. <laughs> they are a pain to you. They are a way of you just don't have your freedom and your independence. You're being told what you can do and can't do and you just don't want all of that stuff. And the last thing you're thinking about, oh, I want to be blessed. Give me more commandments. <laughs> we just don't think that way. Okay? Alright. So, got this in mind? Okay, now. Now let's go back 
Put all this together. Wherefore I the Lord, knowing the... If you have a loving, caring heart, and you happen to have read the Book of Mormon more than just a few verses, what is the number one problem for the Nephites over and over and over and over? And how do we describe their hearts? Hardened. The number one problem in the Book of Mormon is the hardening of the hearts. That's why Alma in Alma 5 is trying to get them to do the mighty change of heart from what? Hard heart to loving heart. I need you to go from being hard to loving. Okay? And whenever their hearts start to harden, then they're blind, then they're deaf, then they, you know, all that kind of stuff. Okay? So, I want you to see it in, the, in this. Yes, when we talk about verse 17. I, the Lord, knowing the calamity, yes, earthquakes, yes, tsunamis, yes, tornadoes, uh, yes, yes, yes. What's the real calamity that comes to the earth in the last days? Hardening of the hearts. Think about the wars and the evil and stuff. What war, what evil is perpetrated by people on other people without having a hard heart? You go back to the statement of the Savior. He says, in the last days, the love of many shall wax. Yes, there it is. In the last days, how, how will you know it's the last days? Well, the love of many will wax cold and get and he uses, he's using the word wax perfectly, right? If they have any kind of candle or something like that, and you're burning wax, when it's warm, it's malleable, it brings heat. It brings, what happens when it cools? Hardens. It hardens. Yeah, so it's a hardened heart. Okay, yeah. Well, I also like it because it's kind of a process as well. I mean, it's not like you wake up one day and it's yeah. a hard Yes. Yeah. I was hard, now I'm soft. Right. And it, it is. It's that very simple. Very Absolutely. Simple I've been reading a book on Paul, and it's interesting that Paul talks about, do you know that it was like almost 12 years from the time that he uh, sees the Savior on the road to Damascus before he's ready to kind of go out and do his first, he goes out into Arabia. He does other things, but it takes him a long time to get past some of the overly zealous stuff that he struggles with, and he doesn't do well on his first mission. He goes bumping heads with Peter on some things, okay? That softening process takes a while. I think that's a great point. Well, like close to uh, what Father said to uh, Joseph, you speak close with your lips, but their hearts are far from you. As a parent, can you imagine having your children all that way? I mean... He wants us to hear him and, uh, and, and, and draw to him. Oh, tell me, hold on, hold on. Tell me those of you who have raised teenagers. <laughs> haven't had that moment when you're, when you're trying to talk to them across the kitchen table or you're sitting in their bedroom and you go, that with their lips they tell me, but their hearts are far from me. And I ain't got them. <laughs> they're, they're not even on the same. Are you listening to me? Yeah. Are, are, are you going to do this? Oh, sure. No, you're not. <laughs> Have you ever vaped? No. <laughs> and it's painful on her. It's, when you know that they're not connected, they're not there. That's right. 
Okay, I just think it is so is so realistic on this stuff. Anyway, okay, so I, the Lord, knowing the real calamity, which is hardness of hearts. Okay. Yes, the other calamities are there, but this is the hardness. Okay, should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, called upon my prophet Joseph Smith, and spake from heaven, and did what? Gave him commandments. To do what? To teach them how to love. To overcome the hardness, the calamity, which is the hardness of hearts, I'm going to give them commandments which will teach them how to love. Now, if that, let me show you what this process looks like. Okay? Uh, I gave them commandments. Um, and, and ultimately, here, if they get commandments, verse 19, the weak things of the world shall come forth and break down the mighty and strong. And they're going to do it by love. Uh, that, but that every man, and this is one of the genius, I think, of Joseph Smith, was that rather than try and set him up as kind of the grand king or something like that, the whole purpose of the gospel did this interesting process, and that was that every man might speak in the name of God, the Lord, even the Savior of the world. And if we are speaking in the name of the Savior, how are we doing that? Through the Holy Ghost, which was given to us by love. The atonement, the gift of the Spirit, these are all gifts that we received. Because when we accept the mighty change comes, we are filled with His love. The next thing we do is what? We go share it, teach it. What are we teaching? God loves you. He does. I, he is merciful. He's not a capricious God trying to figure out how to make your life miserable. He isn't anxious to give you adversity just so you'll learn patience. Okay? Alright. So, that all of these things, that faith might increase, my everlasting covenant might be established, that the fullness of my gospel might be proclaimed by the weak and simple. By the way, I, I do think it's interesting, those guys sitting around, uh, they must, in, in the John Johnson, that, that upper room up there is not that big. Uh, it would hold, uh, it could probably hold 25 or 30, and that would be tight. Okay? Imagine them sitting around while Joseph is dictating this, and what they're hearing is the gospel is going to be preached by the weak and simple. Yeah, that'd be you, you uh, Parley. <laughs> yeah, they're like, okay, congratulations. See you later, brother, weak and simple. <laughs> That's us. Woo! The weak and simple. <laughs> okay? Um, okay, now, these commandments and the process of teaching you how to love have these four elements to them. I gave it in weakness and the manner of their language um, that they might come to understanding. Okay, guys, insomuch as you erred, it might be known. By the way, if you err, it might end up in a revelation. Everybody's going to be reading about your errors. <laughs> and Joseph Smith leads out. I mean, our first, the very first recorded revelation that we have from him, section three, is like blasting Joseph. You, you fear men more than God. What are you doing? Okay. Yes, that's revelation. Let's put that in scripture. <laughs> Doesn't necessarily come from a guy driven by ego that wants to edit, because he had a chance to edit that. 
Imagine Sidney sitting next to him while he goes, we're editing three and this says you feared men more than God. Do you want to take this out? <laughs> yeah, but we'll leave it because <laughs> it's revelation. Everybody's going to know my weaknesses. Okay? Insomuch as they erred, it might be known. Insomuch as they sought wisdom, they might be instructed. Insomuch as they sinned, they might be chastened, that they might repent. And insomuch as they were humble, they might be made strong, blessed from on high, and receive knowledge. Okay? That's the purpose of the commandments. It's to teach us how to love. Yeah, Barb? Um, my son was giving, asked to give a talk on how the scriptures help their lives. And so he asked us for our favorite scripture... And I sent him um, the scripture when Joseph was in Carthage jail and said I have a love-hate relationship with it because <laughs> it talks about all the things that he might possibly go through and that it will be for his good. And, you know, that's something we have to consider when we're going through our trials. Mm -hmm. I know. It is a growing experience. It is out of love. Yeah. That we experience these things. Isn't it funny though, during those growing experiences, we tend to go, okay, Lord, have I learned it yet? Then can it stop? <laughs> and by the way, it's still going on because I've been dumb enough not to learn it yet. So really, my adversity is my fault because I was just too stupid to have learned the lesson. So how come you're having adversity? Well, I'm dumb enough not to learn. It's my fault. So we do this weird logic all the time. But, okay, yeah. I think one of the purposes of adversity is for us to understand how much God loves us because when we're in yes. moments, that's when we seek Him, and that's when we can feel His love. Often, Great point. All right. So here, so here's the, the other little thing that kind of jumped out to me in uh, in section one. Uh, the Lord has always had in in Scripture. Uh, we have these these two. Hugh Nibble used to call it the doctrine of the two ways. Everything kind of splits onto one side or the other. So generally in the scriptures you'll see this dichotomy laid out between those that are going to go to Zion. And Zion is one heart, one mind, good people, you know, caught up to heaven kind of guy. Okay. And what is the opposite of Zion? Babylon. Okay? The, the Babel, the mixing, the trying to find heaven on our own. This city gets caught up, Zion. This They're going to build this false temple uh, to try and do it their way. Uh, and and, and that, that, those terminology come out of Babylon. It's, a, it's about Babylon. And, and then Babylon will come in and conquer sometimes. You know, he's, so all the way through the scriptures we get this Zion versus Babylon dichotomy here. Okay? In section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord is going to use a different word, and I don't and I don't know exactly why, but I have my ideas about why it is that he would use this particular term. It's the only place that I can find that he uses the term. Um, okay? And it's this. Oh, before I show it, because I actually put it in. I don't want you guys to see it yet. So I, I, somebody read uh, verse 36. Somebody got 36? R read it out loud. Teaching technique is you don't reveal something until you're ready for it to be teen, right? Okay. Somebody got 36. Verse 36. Okay. Read it loud. And also the Lord shall have power over his saints and shall reign in their midst. 
and shall come down in judgment upon Idumea. Idumea. Or the world. Ah, okay. Idumea. The end of the world. Where's, where, where and what is Idumea? It says it's the world. Let's figure out what part of the world Idumea exists in. Where's Idumea? See, Bill, if they don't come up with it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you on this one. Bill knows. <laughs> Bill knows. Okay? They're not getting it. Okay, Bill, where's Idumea? Well, it's the Latin form of Edom. Edom. And where is, and where is Edom? It's Transjordan in, in modern Jordan. It's kind of southeast Jordan. Right. It's kind of that area from the kind of dead, top of the Dead Sea, kind of down to the Red Sea, kind of that area down there. That's, that's Edom. And they call it Edom originally because the original uh, inhabitants of Edom was Esau, Edomites, okay, red, okay, they're there. Now, so you get this area on the other side of the Jordan, down to, in that area, that is, that is Edom. Okay, uh, and well, this is also the area, by the way, when when the children of Israel couldn't quite, they weren't ready yet to camp in in Israel. The Lord sends them where into Idumea. Into that's the that's the Greek form of that or Latin. He sends them to Edom. They're wandering around there for 40 years. When, when you're in Jordan, they go, yeah, this is where Moses was. Great. Okay. Uh, now, so I want you to picture this for a second. You've got, you've got Israel, and then you've got... Uh, uh, here's the Jordan River coming down. Dead Sea, Jordan, Red Sea. Okay, here's that. And this area that he's talking about, Edom, Idumea, is right here on, where is it? It's just on the other side of the river. Okay, we had an interesting, uh, we got just a second. Uh, in crossing that, that area uh, a few weeks ago, he starts laughing, um, to go from Israel into Jordan uh, meant that we were going to uh, check out of, of Israel and, and we get our kind of our exit stuff and everything and then we're looking across about 200 yards of darkness and on the other side are these little lights over there and this is the Jordanian uh, border guards over there can you drive across? Oh no. No, you've got to pick up your suitcases and you've got to walk across 200 yards of darkened space to get over there to the Jordanian side uh, and check in over there. We had a lady with a wheelchair. We're trying to figure out how to get the wheelchair all the way across over there. Okay, uh, But you had a sense of we're going from Israel stuff to we're walking across the darkness to Jordan. Okay, of which they're now very suspicious of any um, religious objects you might have in your bag. Well, I just ran them through the olive shop, <laughs> olive wood shop in Jerusalem. Everybody's got religious items. Okay, and the Jordanians are going to be very careful to pull it out, look at it. What do you plan on doing? And try and like preach out of this thing. They're looking for Bibles. They're looking for. They're just. Not, I just need to make sure you're not like. And by the way. Uh, 
the guards also told us that one of the reasons why we're being so careful here is that ISIS, as it is breaking up in Syria, they're trying to sneak back the number four from Jordan. They're trying to come in as tourists. So they were looking for former ISIS people. Anyway, but you had this sense of walking from the light and the coolness and everything here to darkness and into Jordan on the other side. Okay, at least at that moment. Now parts of Jordan are spectacular, but that moment was a very sobering. All the laughing that was going on the bus prior was like, oh my gosh, this is serious. <laughs> We're going into a very dark place. And you've got the vehicle with the machine gun. On. Well, there was that. There was the thing with the machine gun on top. Yes. Okay. But but you get this really stark difference between this side of the Jordan and that side of the Jordan, and this one where 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 things are one way, and this side over there, everything is suspicious, and and you've got to be careful. Yeah. Is this the same river that? Joshua with the priest stepped into the water. Same one. Same one. Yeah. So it's about 200 feet? Well, th this particular crossing from there to there was about 200 yards. I mean, it was a dark and there wasn't even lights. I mean, we're just like, there, there are lights in the distance and that's where we're going as we're carrying our little suitcases across. And So the river wasn't in that place. Yeah, it wasn't. We weren't walking across the river. It was parking lot at that point. But when we were at, when we were actually in the Jordan doing and you know this is why maybe where Jesus was baptized and everything, there are little cones there floating in the river that says you can actually go under the cone, but it, but that's now Jordan and if you they're not going to let you come back. There is a de demarcation between Israel and Jordan. Okay, now so there's a there's a demarcation between Israel and Idumea and Israel and. And, and guess how close it is. It's, it's right there. Okay? So, I, I find it fascinating. The Lord, verse 36, The Lord shall have power over his saints and shall reign in their midst and shall come down in judgment upon Idumea, Edom. The, the world that exists on the other side of the river that is very close to you. Now, I have some, uh, I've wondered, this is just me speculating all over the place here. I just find it interesting that when they went out to Zion, there's establishing Zion. Uh, we're here in the, what is going to be our sacred area here. And immediately to the north is the Missouri River. That there was a river and the city and the world that exists just on the other side of the, the world. And, and maybe there was some, he might have used this term because it would make sense. It might have been language that these guys would have understand. The Zion will be here and right across the river is a dangerous world over here on the other side. Okay, does that, does that make sense? And I don't know if that's why he used it. I really don't. But I just think it's fascinating that this is the only spot that he uses this word in this context. Now, what it, what it comes to my mind is, how close is the world to us? It's a click away. How, how nearby is the wickedness going on? It is just over the river. Which in our case may be just over the boundary to the next house. It may be just to the next website. It may be that that line is a very narrow line. And it's a world of difference. 
And it's completely different on that. So, any comments on that? Is that? I, I just found it. Again, part of, part of this thing that I think goes with, Don, you survived that. Was that a harrowing experience? Well, we had to check our passport four or five times. Yes. It was late at night, and we hadn't had any supper. and hadn't eaten anything since lunch. <laughs> and um, it was, and the way they treated us and everything, it was a really worrisome Yes, it was. And you get a chance, again, that you've stepped out of what you knew into this is an unknown. Okay? And I think that's, I think that's what happens here. I think if, if you are rooted in the gospel and you're rooted in love, I think you're going to sense the difference that you're in a different place. Because uh, there were a number of times we might have thought, well, maybe we'll just go back. We'll keep doing the Israel thing. This looks a... Now, I'm glad we went because it was spectacular stuff on the other side. But that initial crossing over, it, when we've done that, even in our own life, when we go from things we're doing to things we shouldn't be doing, we may have that sense of, I've stepped over. Very scary. Yeah. Okay. All right. So... Ultimately, search these commandments for they are true and faithful and the prophecies and promises shall be fulfilled. Uh, and I've spoken, I excuse not myself. Okay? Alright. Probably a good place to uh, end. Uh, we will... That's Idumia. <laughs> that's, that's Edom. Um, yeah, can I have two minutes? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say about the rain in our midst, and it reminds me of that talk by Elder Bednar to sweep the earth with the flood, and he talks at the end about how we bear testimonies through technology that that scripture That that's the flood that makes more sense. Yeah, that's true. Okay. So just to give you an idea of what Idumia is and how it works, okay, uh, th this includes the areas of, of Petra and things like this, where they, they carve these magnificent things in there. Uh, it's actually referred to, we think, in Jeremiah 49. So let me go quickly over to Jeremiah 49 because it's going to give you an idea of what we're trying to avoid. Jeremiah 49. A number of scholars have suggested that this is maybe describing this area, particularly Petra, which has all of these intricate things carved into the rock and all that. And Jeremiah is going to say, Thy terribleness hath deceived thee, and the pride of thine heart. O thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, that holdest the height of the hill, Thou, thou that should bring us thy nest as high as an eagle, I will bring thee down from thence, saith the Lord. By the way, I do think, fascinating to me that he's talking about uh, dwell us high up on the height of the hill, thou should make us the nest as high as the eagle. Can you think of anywhere in the Book of Mormon where you've got a group of people trying to do the right thing and there are people high up above them that, that might be kind of raining down stuff on them? The great and spacious building. 
Yes. Rami Ampton is a little bit that way too. You're right. It's just that high up kind of thing. I'm thinking particularly because this is the area, this is the area that Lehi was traveling through and the topography that he was traveling through when he had the dream. Okay? So it makes some sense that some of these images might have been, I don't know if he'd ever, I don't know if he came up the King's Highway and came through here, but I if you just kind of get that sense that even Jeremiah is saying, how do we know where the world is? Well, the world kind of puts themselves up in judgment and, and believes that they're safe because they're high up, higher than everybody else, and they're kind of rained down judgment on those beneath them, on the other side of the river. Yeah. Do these things predate Do they predate Lehi? Uh, Petra, Petra's 300 BC? Yeah, almost everything in Petra's after Lehi. Yeah, it is. There people there, it's just... It wasn't this. Yeah, it's like 300 BC. So, so, but the King's Highway did exist. Yeah. At that point, so it was an area and a topography that he that he'd walked through. Okay, so anyway, I just the 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 imagery there ought to be for us that just says I think the the world and what the Lord is referring to and why He's giving us commandments to teach us how to love is that what's just on the other side of the river is a hardness of hearts, a judgmental pride that that says we're better than you are. And you're gonna, and you'll know it when you see it. When you run across, and what you do is you turn and go back, <laughs> get back on your side of the river. Uh, so, anyway, final comments on any of this? All right. You didn't. You had no idea when we're supposed to be in uh, Hiram, Ohio, that we would end up in Jordan. Weird, huh? <laughs> It's funny how that all kind of comes together. But it was, I didn't choose it. He's the one that put Idemia in DNC 1. So it wasn't my fault. <laughs> okay. Um, again, as always, I bear you my testimony that this is the Lord's preface. This is what he intends us to kind of be the first part, understanding all the other commandments that come. And, and my, my hope would be that as we are filled with love, that we could actually say to him, I can put my name somewhere and say, uh, never to be erased. My testimony will never be erased here. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.